All right. So uh, what I wanted to, to mention up front is uh, next Saturday, uh, I'm going to take a, a week off from, uh, from covering koans. And instead, uh, talk about a, uh, a short film, short being about 45 minutes long, that uh, in Monday's email that I send out, I will be including the link to that. Uh, Lee uh, sent it to me, and it's kind of a documentary about uh, practice at Shahaku and Uchiyama. Roshi's uh, temple in Japan uh, on, on Taiji. So I found it really moving, inspirational. Uh, so hopefully uh, you'll have a chance to view it at some point during the week. And then I thought uh, I'd, I'd like to take next Saturday morning just to talk about it and uh, how practice at a a facility such as that relates to lay practice at lay centers like Crooked River. Uh, so that's that's what I have in mind for, for for next Saturday. So be sure you look at your email on Monday. And except for John, who will actually uh, be out, out of communication. John is uh, is off to uh, Chikoji on Sunday. So he's gonna be our one in-person uh, uh, member who's, who's gonna be participating in their Denkaway Sashin. Uh, hopefully you've seen the schedule that I sent out to everybody. So uh, uh, as I indicated, uh, you're certainly uh, uh, invited to, uh, to to dial in for any of it, uh, zazen periods, uh, services, dharma talks, you know, as you uh, are able to. Uh, that'll be going on throughout next week as well. So that brings me to the reason why we're all gathered here this morning to, to continue our study of the Satipatthana Sutta uh, on mindfulness. And we're, we're at chapter eight now, which is mindfulness of mind. Seems to be, there should, it, it should strike you that there, there's, a natural tension involved here. It's kind of like the the eyeball trying to see the eye. It's mindfulness of <laughs> of so who who's practicing the mindfulness? What's going on here? It's the mind seeing the mind. And here I think uh, our 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 look at and my talk on uh, our contemporary neuroscientist, Antonio Damasio, may be of some help here, uh, where I introduced the notion of emerging properties in, in connection with mind. 
that it's not an entity. It's, it's this constant emergence. And then we can build our conceptual uh, creation to try to understand it. But mindfulness of mind, and I think this is important just as uh, the introductory backdrop to what we're gonna be looking at here. It, it consists of being, I, I, it's even a stretch to say being with, it's just being present for the, these emergences. And even to say properties, to use nouns, it's, it's all emergence. The properties are what, in essence, really, I think, what's being laid out for us throughout the Satipatthana. And now we're, we're looking at a set of, of these emerging properties that that the authors of this sutra categorized as mind. Things like the three poisons, lust or greed, anger, hatred, delusion, and so on. But in essence, these are just emergences. And our entire existence is emerging in emergence. It's, it's ongoing. And I think emergence is, is a, and I mentioned this during the talk on self comes to mind, it's kind of pointing to the exact same thing, I believe, as the Buddhist teachings on suchness, thusness, emergence from all things coming together at this moment, creating just this and our being present with it openly, not picking or choosing, Judging, just being the emergence, which has been referred to as returning to the source because that is the source. It always is. It's just this emerging. And the Satipatthana Sutra, what makes it such a powerful teaching is it it gives us kind of a roadmap for navigating our way through our emerging existence. And I wanted to just kind of draw that out for us as we enter into today's class on contemplation of the mind. Because I think it's important to, to have that awareness 
as we, we work with this. So that we don't turn these, these uh, eight different qualities of mind, or actually 16, because each one has its dualistic partner. And we'll get into that uh, at the appropriate point in, in this morning's class about the dualism inherent in this. So it's a skillful means. It's a practice that leads us to insight into the ultimate nature of things, including ourself as this emergence. It's not the insight itself, it's a means to it. Keep that in mind. So that's why we can, we can accept all this you know, dualism things that, you know, red flags should be going off going, whoa, what's all, <laughs> what's all this? They're okay, as long as we see them as such, that it's not it. But it is a, an extremely helpful roadmap for, for coming to understand our existence as uh, this never ending stream of emergence. In fact, uh, emergence, while it's a contemporary term, uh, it's actually uh, Hongzhi from uh, from uh, uh, what 12th century China, the teaching that's on the back of my Rakasu from Hongji uh, says the empty valley welcomes the clouds. A clouds, a cold stream washes the moon, not departing, not remaining, without attainment, without expectations. And beyond all the changes, give the teaching and emerge. <laughs> How's that? <laughs> so that's whatever our practice is, that's what we're doing. Give the teaching and emerge, which is. The only way the teaching can be conveyed. There's preparation I prepare for, for these talks, but you know, it's, it's uh, organic. It changes. This morning it changed. I, and I wasn't even working on the talk, but I pulled out the Judith Butler book I'm working through and another section in there. I said, well, I, I need to include this. <laughs> so I changed this morning. And actually, uh, uh, even after that, the thought came to mind about the emergence. Because I, I realized I do need to speak about this mindfulness of mind. How's that even possible? Mind looking at itself seems to trap us in this dualistic view of things. Splitting 
splitting the mind in two, creating a second moon is that famous koan about Yunyan sweeping the floor. <laughs> the one who's not busy, the one who's observing himself, herself. Just created a second moon. What's that? So it all comes back to the source emerging. Emerging. And part of that emerging is being able to reflect backward. To, to learn, to have con concepts that we can use to help guide us. But all of it with open hands so that we're, we're, <clears throat> we're entering into each moment of emergence. In a liberated state, liberation will be entering into our, our look at mindfulness of mind. So it's really kind of essential that, that it, it always comes back to this source. And as long as we realize that, we can work with all these skillful means, teaching tools without getting caught by them, without being caught by them. They can be very helpful. All right, so now let's get to Analaya. And I actually, I remember when I first <coughs> was reading this, I was kind of astonished we get to this chapter on mind and I figured out oh, this is gonna be a pretty, <laughs> pretty long one. <laughs> what a topic. See, could go on, you could have been, made an entire book of this size just on that. And it's pretty short. I think we might get through it this morning in spite of all my blabbering here at the beginning. That's why I took some liberties here because I think I can get away with it and still cover the material. So he, he begins by kind of reflecting back on the previous chapter that we looked at last month, Mindfulness of Feelings, where we, we looked at the ethical distinction, he calls it, between worldly and unworldly feelings. And he, he says that the same distinction also occurs with reference to awareness of the ethical quality of mind, namely the presence or absence of lust, anger, and delusion, commonly referred to as the three poisons. The ethical quality of mind, our interdependence, 
So since I'm bring, going to bring Judith Butler into this, it means that for those of us who are studying radical Dharma on uh, Thursday nights, this ethical quality is also hearkening to those teachings as well. It relates to our, our greater existence outside of the skin bag as uh, these interdependent beings in their connectedness to all other beings. So this, this text by Judith Butler, the, the title of it, The Force of Nonviolence, kind of indicates the, the main theme is about with others in not a nonviolent way and its connection to ethics, politics. And she, she says here, uh, the right to persist can only be understood as a social right. And we talked Thursday about individual rights, which is the way we normally see rights. Uh, but she kind of goes in a different direction, the opposite direction, you might say, that these rights are not individual rights. They're social rights. They're, they're global. And, and I think that is an important point to make. That's what makes them ethical. That's not an individual. It's, it's across the board. So you can't pick and choose who has these rights when, when we make them social rights. So the right to persist can only be understood as a social right, as the su subjective instance of a social and global obligation we bear toward one another. Interdependence, our persistence is relational, fragile, sometimes conflicted and unbearable, sometimes ecstatic and joyous. You know, I read that this morning, so that's this, this uh, section of the Sadi Patana. It's talking about you know, the, the joy and the ecstasy, but also the conflict and the unbearable. It's interwoven into this interdependence. The fragility that we have to come to terms with and accept that we are vulnerable. It is fragile. And she goes on to say, many people say that arguing for nonviolence is unrealistic. Computers acting up here. Okay, but you could still hear me. We're all good, right? Okay, good. And and I, I like the way she, she then turns this. She says, these people that talk about nonviolence as being unrealistic, she, she then asks them, 
whether they would want to live in a world in which no one was arguing for nonviolence, where no one held out for that impossibility. They always say, no. Who wants to live in that kind of world? <laughs> so I, I think that also applies to the Dharma. People can look at, at these spiritual traditions and say, well, that's all fine and dandy, but who, who can actually do that? Do we want to live in a world where those traditions are gone? You can't walk in the Buddhist footsteps. So what use is that? And she says, the impossible world is the one that exists beyond the horizon of our present thinking. It is neither the horizon of terrible war nor the ideal of a perfect peace. This is important to bear in mind as we work with mindfulness of mind because we, it sets up these opposite polarities. And that's actually not reality. It is the open-ended struggle required to preserve our bonds against all that in the world which bears the potential to tear them apart. To subdue destruction is one of the most important affirmations of which we are capable in this world. It is the affirmation of this life bound up with yours and with the realm of the living, an affirmation caught up with the potential for destruction and its countervailing force. So that's why reading that this morning, I said, well, basically, <laughs> you know, we, what we're going to do now is just look at some of the details. But this is our life of mindfulness. And our loving kindness and compassion in the world is to, to lead us through this forest of brambles created by greed, hatred, delusion, to be a healing force in the world. To be, to, to honor our true nature and the true nature of all beings. In fact, with, uh, with John's recent ordination, we had some discussion about uh, what's, is he now a reverend? And I indicated, yes, he is. Yeah, uh, reverend. If you looked it up in the dictionary, it means to be revered. And I don't like that definition at all. It's one of the reasons why I never really use the term much. But if we turn that, I'd be real, real good with it. Rather than to be revered, it designates one who lives a reverential life. Practicing that, that reverence 
throughout their life for all beings. That's what reverence should be. Rather than turning it to oneself, it's outward. So the most impactful reverence I know from any tradition, that's exactly the way they are. They are reverential. They're not to be revered. They're too busy practicing that in terms of their relationships with others. And that, I think, also relates to mindfulness of the mind when we get into the aspirational side of this, you know, the unsurpassed. Well, now, this is one of those that I, I thought it would be helpful to uh, actually read this section of the sutra. So I'd like to do that next. So, and it's kind of good to, uh, to recite these uh, old uh, Theravadan sutras originally from the Pali language. They have, because this uh, predates uh, the the availability of written sutras. So this was kind of meant to be chanted, memorized. So the flow of it, uh, it accords with that. So here's uh, the section on mindfulness of mind. And how monks does he in regard to the mind abide contemplating the mind? Here, he knows a lustful mind to be lustful and a mind without lust to be without lust. He knows an angry mind to be angry and a mind without anger to be without anger. He knows a deluded mind to be deluded and a mind without delusion to be without delusion. He knows a contracted mind to be contracted and a distracted mind to be distracted. He knows a great mind to be great and a narrow mind to be narrow. He knows a surpassable mind to be surpassable and an unsurpassable mind to be unsurpassable. He knows a concentrated mind to be concentrated and an unconcentrated mind to be unconcentrated. He knows a liberated mind to be liberated and an unliberated mind to be unliberated. In this way, in regard to the mind, he abides contemplating the mind internally, externally, internally, and externally. He abides contemplating the nature of arising, of passing away, of both arising and passing away in regard to the mind. Mindfulness that there is a mind is established in him to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and continuous mindfulness. And he abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. That is how in regard to the mind, he abides contemplating the mind. And this is, I, I love this, uh, towards the end, the sentence that mindfulness that there is a mind is, is established in him 
to the extent necessary for bare knowledge. Bare awareness may be a better term than knowledge there. So the mind is a construct. This is not in conflict with Dogen or Zen more generally speaking, from Huineng on of no mind. Mindfulness is, is compatible with no mind. It's just, and this is how I was laying it out in the beginning. These are just tools to use as roadmaps for us in navigating our continual emergence and to see these qualities of that emergence within our web of interdependence and our position within that web ever changing relative to all of these stations, maybe we could call them, the 16 states, the eight categories. And we'll get into those with more specificity here. Because contemplation of the mind makes use of eight categories with the task of sati, mindfulness, to know a particular mental quality or its opposite, so that contemplation of the mind actually covers 16 states of mind. And these 16 states can be subdivided into two sets. The first set contrasts unwholesome and wholesome states of mind while the second set is concerned with the presence or absence of higher states of mind. And this point, refer to these states and we'll go through them. Uh, and I'm pulling this from page 174 for those that have the text handy. Uh, so on that, on that page, there's a, a brief chart that has two, uh, two columns, ordinary states of mind on the left and higher states of mind on the right. The ordinary states of mind are referencing uh, unwholesome, lustful, angry, deluded, distracted. And the, the partner, the, the uh, wholesome states associated with each of those is simply without. So lustful is without lust. Anger, angry is without anger. Deluded is without delusion. And distracted is uh, is actually contrasted with contra uh, contracted, to be contracted. We'll get into that a little bit. That's kind of a uh, an interesting <laughs> way take on that. Uh, 
And I think even Adelaide seems to struggle a bit with that one. Uh, and then the, the column on the right, the higher states of mind, great, maha, the opposite of that is narrow. Unsurpassable, surpassable. Concentrated, unconcentrated, or we could also say distracted. And then liberated, unliberated. We could also say bound. To be unliberated is to be in bondage. So these are the categories, including the opposites, this, what constitute the 16 categories of mind for the purposes of the Satipatthana Sutra. So this is where our awareness, our attention gets directed. And as the, the language of the sutra that I uh, just read indicates, it's about this being aware, being aware if what's emerging right now is anger, that you recognize that. And if you are free of anger, that you can also recognize that. Because these awarenesses come into play in terms of concentration, one of the higher states of, of, of the mental qualities. Because to be concentrated is to be free of those uh, lower states, the negative side to them, to be free of greed, to be free of anger, to be free of distraction. And actually, the, when uh, next week, or next month rather, we'll be looking at uh, the opening part of the uh, fourth and final foundation of mindfulness, uh, the dharmas, uh, we'll be looking at the hindrances. And the hindrances are another way of conceptualizing these impediments. So to become concentrated, we, we have to be free of the hindrances. If we have anger, lust, distraction, and then the other two it, it, that make up the five, list of five hindrances are uh, sloth and torpor and uh, skeptical doubt. If those are present, you cannot be concentrated. You cannot be focused. So that's why they are, they're labeled as being hindrances. So those have a close relationship with these ordinary states of mind, the unwholesome side of the ordinary states of mind. So mindfulness of those is a prelude to being able to enter into the higher states like concentration. So this practice of Satipatthana, as has been true for the first two foundations we looked at, body and feelings, it's ongoing. And we can certainly incorporate it into meditation practice, but this is 
you know, a practice that we hopefully uh, are doing in the course of our day-to-day lives is being aware if anger is arising. To, nothing, we, can, we cannot work with it unless it, it all begins with the awareness. Oh, anger is arising. So this, this uh, that's being presented to us is how to effectively work with that. And it begins with mindfulness. And it's the most important tool in the box. Quite often, it's the only one you need to pull out just by being mindfully aware of. It, it drains it of so much of its energy. And most of the time, it's sufficient. If it isn't, yeah, there are other tools you can get. You can go in, grab a, a spe- more specialized wrench or four pliers or something, <laughs> whatever you might need. But most of the time, mindfulness is like this uh, you know, handy dandy tool that, uh, for, for, you know, advertising. They could, I could just imagine what they, the way they could sell that on a, <laughs> uh, on a TV uh, commercial program, you know, boy, we've got this. This will this will get rid of all the problems of your life. You know, mindfulness. Sign up for this course. <laughs> this will do the trick for almost all of it. We've got another course ready for you if if you need need to uh, uh, have have some problems that that are a little more resistant. But this will take care of most of it. Also, when I was reading the sutra, it talked about mindfulness of the arising and the passing away. And this is a constant refrain that applies to all of these aspects of mindfulness. So to be aware that these are passing states, that's really important. It's one of the reasons why as soon as we're aware that anger is arising, combined and part of that awareness is that this is a temporary state. When we feel angry, we're not thinking about its temporary nature. You know, we're thinking this is all consuming because that's the power it, uh, it takes over us. So just to be aware. You know, it's arising now, but it will subside. That, just that awareness alone, again, drains so much of its power. It's temporary. It's just part of this emergence. But it won't last. It doesn't stay. Inject the the political violence, nonviolence. You know, uh, how long after the end of conflicts, our former enemies all of a sudden become some of our best friends? Yeah. And the anger, the hatred that we used to feel, all of a sudden shifts. You know, World War Two. 
after we defeat Germany, then we start helping it. Ditto for Japan. Comes to America. Yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> that was their real aim. <laughs> See, they won. <laughs> so it's kind of helpful to keep that in mind so that we're not all consumed. This awareness of the arising and passing away of all of these states of mind. It also applies, and this is where uh, Judith Butler's way of phrasing it was so powerful for me, was even on you know the, the peace and harmony side. You know, that that uh, is arises and will pass away. The fact it's going to pass away doesn't mean that we don't continue to, to keep kind of leading our life down that path, promoting it, being it in our own lives, but recognizing that it too will perish and arise again perish to see this as part of the emerging quality of existence. So realizing, and this is back to Analaya, realizing the impermanent and conditioned nature of the mind accords with the general thrust of Satipatthana towards detachment and non-identification. That's the uh, other piece of, of mindfulness and being able to work effectively with all of these things that, that arise, that emerge, is not to identify with it. And to maintain that, that sense of, of detachment, to not get hooked by it, caught by it, to care for it, but we can't fully care for it if we are hooked by it. So, Mindfulness is being seen as, as a non-reactive awareness of one's state of mind. Just bare awareness. So in Zen, you know, the teaching is often conveyed as not picking or choosing, not judging. Non-judgmental mind is, is a mind that's capable of practicing mindfulness, bare awareness. And another important piece, and this runs throughout the sutra, but uh, 
it's good to have the reminder here for mindfulness of mind is that uh, contemplation of the mind does not involve active measures to oppose unwholesome states of mind as if that's we're trying to push that away we're just aware we we remain present with it and part of that awareness is involves honesty on our part. Anlayo uh, makes an important point here. He says the habit of employing self-deception to maintain one's self-esteem has often become so ingrained that the first step to developing accurate self-awareness is, is honest acknowledgement of the existence of hidden emotions, motives, and tendencies in the mind without immediately suppressing them. We need to see what's actually happening there. Because we do kind of create our narrative and anything that that is contradictory to that narrative gets brushed aside. We don't let that out of the basement. We need to, part of this mindfulness practice is seeing and accepting the whole thing. The the good stuff and the not so good stuff. Because otherwise, without that awareness, It just continues through our conditioned nature. It continues. It's the same old, same old. And there's no practice involved. Without mindfulness, we're not engaging practice. The fact that that the practice itself kind of allows, we might call it, the natural course of things, the true natural course to unfold because we're mindfully aware. And that's the huge shift right there, right there. It's when we're not, then we can't practice. When we are, practice will naturally arise as long as we keep our awareness with these emergent states of our being. And we're always aware. That's the crux of the matter, being clearly aware at all times. A constant thread that runs through Zen teachings for sure. Hence, Dogen's teaching that uh, to study Zen is to study the self. That's awareness. It's not studying, going off to college and getting a degree in psychology. It's to practice awareness in your life. 
one other section here from the uh, from Anlayo's uh, commentary that I, I wanted to to read here uh, in this regard. He says, in order to come to grips with the rep repeated occurrence of unwholesome thoughts, attention turns to the nature of these thoughts and to the volitional disposition or driving force that produced them. How do they come to arise? The discourse explains this simple but ingenious method of turning the full light of attention on the mental condition underlying one's thoughts with the help of a simile. One is walking quite fast for no particular reason. Becoming fully aware of what one is doing, one might walk slower or even stand still. Or instead of standing, one might sit or lie down. This progressive increase in physical comfort and tranquility vividly illustrates how the mental agitation and tension of unwholesome thought processes can be gradually reduced and overcome through direct observation. Watching an unwholesome state of mind without involvement in this way will deprive it of its fuel so that it will gradually lose its power. And such mindful observation without involvement is illustrated in a simile in the discourses in which the Buddha compared awareness of one's states of mind to the use of a mirror to see one's reflection. Just as a mirror simply reflects whatever is presented to it, meditators should try to maintain bare awareness of the present conditions of their mind without allowing reactions to arise. Of course, the mirror imagery uh, factors into Zen teaching uh, fairly prominently. Uh, maybe most noteworthy, noteworthy is uh, Dongshan's uh, Song of the Precious Mirror Samadhi. Mind as mirror. It has that potential. But again, it depends on mindfulness. To use the, going back to Hui Neng, uh, the thing about the, the mirror, uh, one of the other uh, important uh, uses of the mirror imagery about you know, the, the dust and keeping it clean. Uh, you know, so it can be seen in that way, but it can also, as Hui Neng looked at it in terms of its emptiness, you know, there, there is no mirror. And it, it becomes clean that way too. They're actually the same teaching. It's just that the one is from the side of, of awakening, of enlightenment. The other side, to brush it clean, yeah, it's not that that's a, <laughs> a bad teaching. That, that, that'll get you uh, pretty far on this path too. But that was a, a story about having being in this place of, 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 of enlightenment, of seeing the true nature of things. 
what now? Now there's just this emergence coming forth, thusness, suchness. So let's uh, next look at the four ordinary states of mind. And the first three, uh, you know, lust, anger, and delusion, you know, I think uh, we're, we're pretty, calm, pretty uh, familiar with these since they do constitute the three poisons or the main roots of all unwholesome mental events and with delusion being the principal one. So the kind of flip side of delusion is wisdom, seeing the true nature of things. And the flip side of anger can be seen as loving kindness. The flip side of, of lust, of greed, is the paramita of, of dana, of generosity. Rather than lust and greed is you know, what's in it for me. I want this, I want that. Rather than turning it outside, flipping it around and, and giving, openly, freely giving. So to live mindfully, to practice mindfully, is having the awareness. You know, which state of mind am I bringing here? Am I bringing an angry mind or a loving mind? And the the distinction here between the individual and the universal, to keep that in mind too, I think. Because if it's just directed towards an individual, then you know, this is where the, the great, the maha on the wholesome side, I think that, that's a helpful category. The maha side, is pointing towards the universal. So that's practicing loving kindness universally. I mean, the love for particular individual or group of individuals, you know, that's love. But maha love, to, to link it up with the other side, that other column of mental factors, now that becomes Maha. I mean, it's it becomes something that's not picking and choosing. So we're on the side of awakening to the true nature of things. And ditto with generosity. We all have uh, those that we're generous towards. But can we practice that universally? And of course, wisdom, the counterpart to delusion, 
by its very nature, it's universal. So, yeah, individualized wisdom isn't wisdom, it's just knowledge. I know about this. I know about that. To, to have wisdom is 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 uh, directed towards the global wholeness, seeing the interconnectedness. So as Analayo puts it, systematic development of the ability to distinguish between wholesome and unwholesome states of mind, whether you're angry or, or not angry, whether you're greedy, lustful or not. Having this awareness constitutes an important asset in one's progress on the path and a reliable guide to proper conduct in daily life, living the precepts, living in harmony, universally with all beings. So, and he, he talks about the range within the, uh, the, uh, 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 left side column, he says, to be without anger could refer simply to a state of mind free from irritation. You know, you're kind of in a peaceful state. That's being free of anger. Or it could, uh, it could also refer to a mind that's overflowing with loving kindness. That's a mind without anger. <laughs> You can't hold anger if, if you're overflowing with loving kindness. So both of those states of mind would qualify as, as not non-anger. But the, the wholesome column, the higher states of mind, I should say, you know, the great, unsurpassable, concentrated, liberated. Yeah, those are those are pointing to these states of mind such as overflowing with loving kindness, with generosity, bringing prajna wisdom to all one's activities. And another important point here that gets made is that contemplation of the mind appears to be not only concerned with momentary states of mind, but also with the overall condition of the mind. And I guess this is just the nature of, of conditioning is that as through mindfulness, we reduce the instances of, of the unwholesome states of mind and thereby increase the wholesome states. It shifts the condition of our mind. 
kind of like, and I think we, we experience that. We can see that. That's part of this liberation. That in the higher states column, uh, there's a liberating quality that, that lasts. It's not just in this moment, but we feel more liberated. That's an apt description, I think, of the overall condition of the mind. And then just to briefly talk about these two states of mind that are next listed, uh, contracted and distracted. You know, and he, he says both appear to have negative implications. You know, having a contracted mind, uh, especially since it's not, uh, to put a positive spin on it, we might say, well, that's kind of like a, a focused, concentrated mind. But, but that actually concentrated comes up under the, uh, the higher state. So no, it's not that. It's actually <laughs> not so great. Uh, even though the way it's listed here, it seems to be the, uh, the, the positive, more positive side to distracted. But, uh, but then he talks about elsewhere, where in the sutras where contraction is seen as being the result of sloth and torpor, which is one of the hindrances. While distraction is the outcome of pursuing sensual pleasures, that we are easily distracted. And, and as, as we've uh, looked at in the past, you know, there are forces out there in our world that, that have an interest in distracting us. They, they want us to, to uh, pay attention to, to what they have to peddle for to us. So mindfulness has become really important in our lives. Because the temptations are ever present to be aware before we we click and open open this up go to this site so distraction anymore has become uh, largely i think our, our our greatest bombardment for that occurs electronically Yeah. And I mean, Anilayo basically uh, comes out of this discussion of contraction and distraction by pointing to, uh, to the importance of the ability to balance the mind by avoiding both. It's an important skill, he says, required for the development of deeper levels of concentration or insight, which are the two aspects of our practice, concentration, insight. Referring back to Hong Ji, the author of the, the piece on my Rakasu, he called it silent illumination. A concentration is the silence. Insight, it's the illumination. 
seeing things as they really are. Having that deeper understanding. And cultivating such balance is needed once one has at least temporarily moved beyond the reach of the grosser types of mental unwholesomeness and is aiming toward the development of higher states of mind. The states that are described on that right side column. Entering that Maha great realm. So then he uh, moves on to talk about these four higher states of mind. So great or Maha generally, he says, occurs in other discourses in the context of calmness meditation. Gives one example of that, uh, radiating the four divine abodes in all directions the Brahma Baharas, which are loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and uh, equanimity. So this is why Jeff's cheat sheet is so powerful. (laughs) You can have all this at your fingertips. I can even get get a lot of usage out of that. I, I haven't memorized half of the uh, <laughs> the ones that he captured. So, but just putting a plug in for it, and the price is right for it anyway. Why not? Why not use it? And of course, to practice with that is. To, to be in, in the realm of the Maha, of the unsurpassable, this boundless realm. So that's kind of a, a, a very a good example, I think, of the higher state of mind that this uh, part of, of the Satipatthana is pointing to, as opposed to our very constricted, Deluded states of mind, which are driven by the three poisons. So, and a great state of mind is related to the development of absorption, also known. It's samadhi for us, this ability to concentrate, to put our full attention, to become absorbed by. I know this is a subject that uh, that's of, of uh, considerable interest to, to many Sangha members. And I uh, shared that text, Who is Myself, by Aya Kema which talks about the practice with the absorptions from a Theravadan point of view. So I just recommend that highly for anybody who really wants to to do a deep dive into that and to get some firsthand experience with this kind of work. 
because it uh, it's it's not shikantaza. I don't. That would be a whole new different talk to to talk about how in what regards it's not shikantaza, but but yet it, it's a useful tool in terms of being able to focus our minds because that kind of focus is shikantaza. Dogen, his er, very early work, Bendawa, the wholehearted way, has the section in there about uh, self-realization, jijuyu, zammai, samadhi. So that self-manifestation, the self-realization is tied in to samadhi, to being completely focused on what's arising. Without that ability to concentrate in silence, in calmness, in, in tranquility, not subject to agitation, not subject to the five hindrances, we can't study the self. And if we can't study the self, we can't forget the self. And the myriad things can come forth and, uh, and realize themselves, be realized. None of it ha can happen. So it's really uh, an important aspect of our practice, along with right mindfulness. You know, right mindfulness, right concentration. Both parts of the Eightfold Path. And the great state of mind, the Maha mind, is dependent upon it. And I guess the the, uh, the section of the higher states of mind, uh, the unsurpassable, we encounter that uh, in terms of the description of of uh, uh, of awakening, uh, anuttara samyak sambodhi. Yeah. It's it's unsurpassed, perfect, complete enlightenment. It's the full, the full awakening. So when unsurpassable is used, it's pointing towards that. Of course, when we chant in before Dharma talk, you know, an unsurpassed penetrating and perfect Dharma is rarely met. And then when we chant out, we talk about Dharma gates are boundless. <laughs> Those unsurpassed, penetrating, and perfect dharmas, they're boundless. They're everywhere. So just talking about this full awakening is everywhere. We just need to 
through these practices to, to become awakened to that very fact that it's not someplace far off we have to go to. It's not something apart from us. Or as Hakuin says in his song of Zazen, Zazen Wasan, it's right here, right now. The unsurpassable. So that's a higher state of mind that's always here. The unsurpassable. And the concentrated, we'll be looking at this more next month when we get into the hindrances, because the hindrances or freedom therefrom is kind of the entrance gate to concentration. So those are closely connected. And liberated mind. Don Lyo says, liberated mind can be taken to refer to ex our experiences of mental freedom in relation to both calm and insight. The, the serenity and the illumination, the awakening. So we've kind of one thing that this, the, the great expanse of this section of the Satipatthana is we've, we've ranged now from the three poisons, you know, things like lust and anger, to higher states of mind of the, the unsurpassable, the liberated, the whole thing. This is our mind. The description of the range that it it covers. And it begins just by our calmly taking stock of what's going on at any given moment. It seems kind of simple. And yet to get into the routine of constantly practicing that is pretty arduous. It requires discipline, hugely so. So I think that's probably a good place for me to, to end my, my segment of this.
covered the chapter, I think. John? I'm not sure I still understand the pairing of anger. Uh, remember the context for the pairing. Uh, are you pairing like where they occur in, in those columns or? I don't think so. No, no. So that's an easy. <laughs> no. And I I never saw it as, as being connected, and I don't think Analayo indicates anywhere that there's any sort of connection to be to be drawn there. I don't know if you if you, if you turn up something different, let me know because I I'd be okay. I, I it was just I'd be surprised. Right. But, but I'm I'm regularly surprised anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I'm open to that. Probably makes two of us. Oh, yeah, it would help if I thank you. The third thing I was at home listening, I could Dean, I could always hear perfectly. Quite a bit of distortion from data. Yeah. Be worthwhile. I got a comment where what's trying to hit home for me was the part about um, what was we were talking about the mirror reflecting the mind, but then observing it from uh, non attachment or I can't remember exactly how you word it, but it was really, I've been struggling lately kind of with. Uh, Sloth and torpor and melancholy. At that time, I've been really busy with a lot of things, but then with getting out of bed in the morning and getting on the cushion and taking care of things that need taken care of, but can wait till tomorrow. Uh, I thought that, that would be, I don't remember exactly how you put it, but I thought, man, that's the, when I, when I notice that I'm feeling that way, to sit in Zaza and observe those feelings apart from myself. Because the way I've been doing it now is I sit on a cushion, I go, oh, God, I'm so lazy. Oh, my God, I'm not doing what I need to do. And I feel like shit. I have no motivation. And then I just sit there and stew on it. I don't, and I'm not helping the, my condition. 
Right. You're kind of just I'm reinforcing wallowing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm just yeah. wallowing it. Then I get off the cushion. I go, oh, I still feel like shit. You know, I still don't feel like don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'll sit some more. <laughs> that, so that when you read that part, I really made me think, yeah, I mean, I need to sit, but I need to separate myself and look at my state of mind from an outside position on right. and see. And that's where the, the, the side about it arises, it perishes, it passes away, and it's conditioned nature. That to see that it, it doesn't have any, you know, substantial weight to it. Right. That, and to, when you return to, to those aspects of your life then, uh, and this is where something like the short film I'm going to be sharing with people in the email Monday from from Antaji, uh, you know, to see that they spend a fair chunk of each day in work practice. What's different about their work practice? You know, so uh, and uh, I think uh, everybody has to watch it. It's going to be giving a talk for that reason in December when we talk about. Uh, work practice, how this practice relates to to our, our jobs or you know any other work that we're engaged in. That they're not separate realms. That you know our practice, we can be very enlightened workers, employees, uh, uh, servants of the world out there in all of our different activities. So. Because it's it's coming from the three poisons that that our other activities start to kind of take on this negative quality, but we can just as easily enter into those activities from from the higher states of mind, and all of a sudden they'll become rewarded instead of being these things that we we feel contracted by. Because that's why a lot of times these activities can feel like, they can feel contracted. But they don't have to. They don't have to. Sometimes. I find it like for me, right, it's like, you know, how constant, like the second era, right, just keep piling on the suffering. Yeah. You know, I guess it's, Part is like try to remember like not to take it so personal. It's not like my suffering. It's not my. It's like it's just suffering. It's like the whole world is, is suffering. But I mean, when I make it my own, right. then it's like I just kind of like pile on like to my sloth and purpose, my anger. And I said, but if I can hold it as just it's just anger or it's just suffering, then it doesn't. It's not as personal, and then it kind of like. Use it a little bit. Yeah. It reminds me of early on when I was um, actually doing some Theravada uh, IMS stuff and they were talking about meditating and talking about when you had pain, 
to do just that, to look at it as pain and almost uh, as much as possible, you, you look at where the pain was and then you, you just kind of experience it. And what I found was most of the time, not just sitting, but other times, when I started to do that, I, the pain wasn't near as much as I as I was making. When you when I really started to pay attention to to the sensation and what it was, it was so painful. I, I mean, it wasn't. But there's a whole thing that goes on mentally with that when you start to focus on it as oh my god, you know the, the kind of emotional stuff. Um, and, and it, it really was a very helpful practice very, very early and uh, both in terms of being able to sit, but just understanding mindfulness and it really doesn't matter. Yeah. yeah. And because and, I, I can relate to, to exactly what you're saying. I think we all go through that. And, and it kind of it becomes a liberating experience doing the practice in connection with that because in the past you know i would have seen that as just being uh very contracting that it is what it is it's just pain and we kind of just uh, grit and uh, yeah. get through it <laughs> and uh you know we just look Look for, to the end point and said, "Oh, this is terrible. This is awful." <laughs> and in this practice, all of a sudden, it's like, "Well, no. I mean, I, I didn't have to respond to it in that way at all." Yeah. It hurts. But yeah, it hurts. It hurts. It's okay. <laughs> it just it, it arises. It will it will pass, and uh, and in the overall scheme of things, it's all of a sudden. It's it's not so maha, not so great. <laughs> it's just one one piece of, of what's arising right now. And rather, what we do is we take those elements and we, we completely inflate them and we take over. So our and our state of mind as well. So up to the the uh, uh, unwholesome states of mind, you know, the anger, the lust, or uh, you know, pain, all these things. Uh, these categories aren't the complete list thing. They're just to kind of get us situated with, with the way of practicing. But, but hopefully it helps us to come to understand all the various unwholesome things going on. And we don't have to worry about trying to categorize them. We know. <laughs> and, and this is part of the prajna that, that comes from the practices that we can, we know how to take care of by using these tools to get us started. And then it kind of opens up doors for us and we start to, to be able to, to bring our entire selves into our lives finally and and be able to to practice with with prajna and take taking care of uh, 
So yeah, I mean, these Theravadan teachings are, are really important. You know, and there's a tendency, I think, to, to look at it uh, as, as you know, almost like enlightened Zen or Mahayana snobs, like, oh, you know, that's, that's very mistaken in my opinion. I think there's so much to be gained that it's really the, the, the nuts and the bolts of the practice. And I mean, the Theravada, the Theravada teachers recognize the truth of, of what it is they're conveying. These are skillful means. You know, don't get caught up in all these dualities, wholesome, unwholesome. Uh, yeah. Just use use these tools as tools, and uh, and they can be extremely helpful. But I keep coming back to it. Always the case that any of these teachings, whether it's Dogen or uh, the authors of the Sadhana Sutra, they can all become uh, traps for us if we misuse them. But they can also become you know, keys to our path to liberation, the living uh, in a way from love. Just not turning them into something they're, they're not. Everything arises and passes. The teachings that we find helpful today maybe won't be so helpful tomorrow. Maybe another teaching that we can we can utilize. Dharma dates are boundless. Dharma teachings, we know are boundless. Just check the internet. <laughs> There's no end to that. May our intention equally penetrate every being and place with the true merit of Buddha's way. Beings are numberless, I love to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible, I love to end them. I I vow to become it. All right. I think we have a beautiful fall day awaiting us out there. Hope everybody enjoys it. We'll be back Thursday. And again, look for that oh, film link, and uh, that'll be the subject matter for me. So. I'm pretty sure I've seen that. You don't remember the title. Yeah. Me too. Uh, I, I don't know. I think, <laughs> I think maybe it was YouTube. I just clicked on the link. Uh, All right. Signing off here. <laughs> Thank you.
Thanks, guys.